when Nicola asked me to take part in today's roundtable, I had a very strange feeling. I must begin with that. Usually when you talk about something, it gives you the sense that this thing has finished, that you have time to reflect on it and to assume that you have something to reflect upon. But what is actually happening right now, that right now as I speak, the revolution has not ended. It's right there in the street. Tomorrow, there will be a huge demonstration asking for the removal of the Egyptian government, which was actually appointed by President Mubarak sometime during the crisis. Right now, as I speak, there are lots of people who were uh, arrested during the demonstrations, and they are still in jail for some obscure reason. Many people, many icons of the outgoing regime, of the, of, of, of the ex- the, the, the past regime, this dictatorial regime that we think we have managed to get rid of, are still in power. So it is a revolution in process. So if what I'm, what I'm, what I'm going to say today sounds a bit disconnected or sounds a bit like it has a lot of loose threats, it's not necessarily because of me, but because right now as we speak, the story is still unfolding. And what I will try to do today is not to give you facts. I mean, Nicola has given you wonderful factual background of it, but to give you a bit of emotional, subjective perspective on what is going on. And I insist on the progressive continuous tense because it is still going on. And I would like to invite you all to keep following what's, how the story is unfolding. This is the cover of the Time magazine, and it is the issue of February 28, 2011, so it's still coming. But um, it celebrates Egyptian youth. Right now, the talk of the buzzword is youth, Egyptian youth. There is a narrative in the making right now how Egyptian youth have managed to sort of catch up with the internet revolution, managed to challenge the old regime and the patriarchy. All of them are true, but there's something tricky about this euphoria yet. So generation that is changing the world. Let's say they are global identities, but mind you, there is a very young lady involved. There is a bit of a diversity involved, actually. There is something interesting about this diversity, and I'll keep that in mind. Notice this young lady over there. She's wearing a Palestinian kufiya in solidarity with Palestine. There's a young... There's somebody who looks a bit hip, you know, wearing the cap like this. <laughs> and there is this wonderful, veiled lady. She's, again, very much internet savvy. The, the world is not westernized or Islamic. And these words are not, and what one, one interesting value of the revolution is that it's blurring all these Manichaean contrasting classification all of a sudden. And we are developing a new type of terminology to deal with that. Anyway, this is our President Hosni Mubarak. Former. Former President. <laughs> Former. We'll see about that. <laughs> and guess what? He too had his own celebration of youth. He celebrated the young generation. He too spoke. He too, his regime also spoke about change. And guess what? Anybody knows who this gentleman is? Gamal Mubarak, the, the son of the president, who was being groomed increasingly to, as, as Nicolas just, was being increasingly groomed 
to replace him. So the discourse of youth is not something that, that has been invented during the revolution. It has always been there. Since 2004, there has always been an increasing protest culture rising against this manipulation of public discourse. On 28th of February, three days after the, uh, the beginning of the demonstration of the revolution, President Mubarak had to appease the demonstrators a bit. So what would he do? Finally, after 30 years in office, he decided to appoint a vice president. The significance of the move was not just that he appointed a vice president, but that that meant literally the end of the whole idea of his son replacing him. By appointing a vice president, he was almost, it, it looked to the public at the time that he was appointing somebody else to replace him other than his son. But who, do, who does he choose for that? He chooses his intelligent chief, Omar Suleiman. I want you to listen to what the guy says here. When you see what's happening on the streets of Egypt, of Tunisia, and now of Jordan, and Yemen, and Syria, what do you think? These are young people who want is a different Islam. world. This is the Islamic current who worships people. You think that? Yes. You don't think it's young people who want their rights, their freedom? Uh, I don't think this uh, only from the young people. Others are pushing them to do that. In many parts of the Arab world, there has been no democracy. Do you not think the young people in today's world, connected to the internet, seeing everything that they see, do you not yes. think that it comes from their it, hearts? It facilitates to talk all together. But it's not their idea. It comes from abroad. Do you believe in democracy? For sure, everybody believes in the democracy. So do you not? But when you will do that? When, you, when the people here will have the culture of democracy. Well, I couldn't have put it more bluntly. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to admit I'm grateful for Vice President Suleiman for, for just highlighting in very blunt terms all the contrast I'm looking for. 30 years after the rule of President Mubarak and 60 years after 1952, more than 60 years after the 1952 revolution, Egyptians are not ready yet for democracy. And mind you, and mind you, this is a huge thing to say given that Egypt had the first parliament ever during the 19th century, the first parliament ever in the Middle East and Africa. That was in the 19th century under Khedivi Ismail as part of Egyptian modernity. But still, Egypt is Egyptians are not ready yet for democracy, says the regime. But what is also interesting is that there is an acknowledgement of the of of that that kind of a paternalism involved here, and this is something also that if you check, and you can find that on YouTube, if you check the discourses of the regime throughout the crisis, you'll find a very strong paternalistic discourse going on. President Mubarak, when he spoke to the people, always spoke as a father, as a benevolent father speaking to his son, who probably do not know what is best for the country. He put it that way. He put that, if I leave, there will be chaos. Sounds very familiar. Just as I'm speaking right now, yesterday, 
another dictator or son of another dictator, Saif Islam al-Qazafi, came on TV and regarding the Libyan revolution said the same thing, that if Qazafi leaves, if the dictator leaves, there will be chaos. So it's either foreign intervention, either when you, when you push to, when you try to remove regime, it's either because somebody else is influencing what's going on, Lisa, this is a discourse, and the discourse of a foreign plot that is out there to destabilize Egypt is, is still, actually, as I speak right now, a very powerful discourse in Egypt, or that these young people are probably a bit too rash. Come on, give us a chance to do the reform that you're asking for. In, in both ways, it's a way in which the regime tries to reinvent itself and try to sort of, you know, create a space for, and a time for itself to contain the revolution. So, where does that come from? This is an American anthropologist. This is a poster from President Mubarak's 2005 campaign, presidential campaign in, in 2005. And what does this interesting anthropologist say about Egyptian culture in general? In Egypt, a concerned group of culture industry professionals has constructed of women, youth, and rural people a subaltern object in need of enlightenment. Appropriating and inflecting Western discourses on development, they construct themselves as guides of modernity and assume the responsibility of producing the virtuous modern citizen. How far this discourse is likely to stay after the revolution is another is one interesting challenge that will affect not only politics but will affect all aspects of culture in Egypt and this is the ultimate challenge this is Tahrir Square probably becoming one of the hottest spots in today's world uh, the world is Arabic for liberation but way before that it was called Ismailiya after Kedevi Ismail, who introduced Egypt to modernity in the 19th century. What did he do? Instead of, he went to Paris and, and um, attending something called the Exposition Universelle in, in, in Paris, and he wanted to create a modern Cairo. So what would he do? What he did is not reinvent old Cairo, but he built a new Cairo to the west of it. So we ended up having what we call a dual city. There is old Cairo, and there is, to the west of it, a modern, more European Cairo. Eventually, the both, both, both ended up sort of, you know, interacting with each other. But the idea of the old and the new having a sort of coexistence together is something that remained with Egyptian culture ever since. <laughs> I'll end with an interesting thing. Are you all familiar with what happened on the 2nd of February in Tahrir Square? On the 2nd of February, President Mubarak's supporters, or actually, you know, policemen in civilian clothes and a number of thugs, invaded Tahrir Square trying to intimidate and even kill the demonstrators over there. What would they use? They would go on camels and horses and use camels and horses to intimidate and kill and attack the demonstrators, the revolutionaries. And the scene, as many people have commented, couldn't have been more symbolic. It was the culture of the old 
trying to intimidate and push away the new culture of the internet revolution. Thank you.